we have an obligation uh, as Christians to do something. We have a mission, and uh, I think largely we, we grasp that. Uh, we sort of know that uh, there's, there's one overarching thing that we're supposed to do, but I think we make a mistake when we reduce that to one thing that we're supposed to do. Because there's like many facets or folds to what our mission is. And so what I want to do before I even get to the text this morning is recap for you what you already know. Because I don't think we we quite always break it down uh, the same way. And so uh, the Great Commission that you know of as the, the, the last command of Christ before he ascends to heaven is a familiar thing in our minds and in our mouths. And we say, well, that's the one thing we're supposed to do. But it's one thing that includes many things in it. And so I I would say, whatever it means to be a Christian, at at the most basic, it has to at least mean this, to fulfill this duty, right? Are we in agreement so far? Yes, okay. So let's just go over this real quick and uh, see what it says. So Jesus says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, um, I'm going to say three, three maxims, if you will, three, three, three statements of truth, and then I want to walk through what the, what the Great Commission addresses for us as God's people. So we learn what we follow. Okay? We learn whatever it is that we follow. We become whatever we worship. We become like what we worship. And we overflow whatever is inside of us. Okay? Three things. We learn what we follow. We become what we worship. And we overflow what is inside of us. Okay. So the Great Commission has um, several commands in it. And the first one you probably missed because it's the very first word, which is go. It involves actually going and and moving about in the world, going forward in the authority and power of the Lord. And so the first command there is go, and then he follows that with make disciples. And that's the second command. And then making disciples includes three aspects of how that's that's done. What do you do to make a disciple? Well, we've actually kind of walked through that the last few weeks. One thing that you do is you teach them. You teach them what? To obey all that I've commanded and also baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And then he has a promise to go with it. And it, it comes after this statement. So I have, I'm, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And uh, previously, when he promised that he would go, Jesus, I will leave here bodily. But he said, I won't leave you alone. I'll give you another. And he was referring to the Holy Spirit. So wait for power from on high that you'll be clothed with that will allow you and empower you to carry out this mission. So you'll be witnessing in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. Okay? So the Great Commission has three facets, all connected to making disciples. And that is our task. And at no point did Jesus need to reiterate the idea of you need to stop sinning so much. That's, your, that's my my thing I'm asking you to do as a representative of my name. But if I was to not introduce uh, the Great Commission as the thing that we ought to do, and I said, what are Christians like known for? What, what is it we should be about? That, that would probably be the first line of reasoning. Well, these are people that are like good or people that don't sin as much as other people or something along those lines. And that confuses the issue. And so this morning, I want you to see how the growth of the church is connected to the Great Commission, how these things are being fulfilled in the making of disciples, which is the actual one command that we've been given to do. And in doing that, we actually fulfill the other things that we end up chasing most times as, as our object when they shouldn't be. 
If we're faithful to Christ as our object and serving him, all the other things fall into place. What gets out of sorts is when we chase all of the byproducts and the fruit of following Christ and having him at the center, that we get things disconnected. And so I want to um, help us see that danger through the text this morning and, uh, and uh, see that we are, we are meant to be um, bound together in this effort and that we have a helper. So this morning's title for the sermon is called Church Building Side by Side. Let's go to prayer and then we'll get to the text this morning. Father, I ask that uh, you would just now help us to feel that you are near, that you um, help us in this effort to understand your word, that you do want to speak to us and what's required is us to listen. So Father, open our ears and our hearts to hear your voice in your word. We need to be a people that are centered on you and focused on you and not chasing the many rabbit trails that we get distracted with so many times. So I ask that um, you would honor your word this morning, that it would bear fruit in our hearts and our time in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. So we're going to be chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. I warned you last week that I was skipping to the end of this little passage to connect it importantly to the baptism in the name, right? Part of that commission was baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So that was a whole new paradigm for what's going on. And so all of chapter 11 is following um, the story of now the Gentiles, or you can use that term interchangeably with the nations, now being reached with the gospel and being incorporated into this thing we call the church. So we're going to take this starting in verse 19. Are you with me? Okay. Ready or not, here we go. Now those who were scattered... Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were many, or excuse me, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, and they were preaching the Lord Jesus. So we're in this inauguration period, and it's not, a, a, though, though uh, through Cornelius's um, experience through the following of the, the following of the Holy Spirit on him, that baptism was the, the inauguration of a time where Gentiles are now coming into the church, where that was an unforeseen thing initially by the apostles. Um, they didn't quite get it, like uh, what Larry was saying earlier. And so um, Antioch becomes the place of the first multinational, multicultural church. And that's, that's a big statement. When we think about what it means to be like a multi-ethnic church or multicultural church or multinational church, we think of skin colors, and that's not what's happening here. This is truly a clash of opposite cultures. You have a people who had a way of doing things, that would be the Jews, and then everybody else. And now new people being introduced to that is causing a lot of dysfunction and tension among the apostles because they're trying to figure out how they can manage this thing the way that they think that it ought to go. And so Antioch ends up producing many prodigious Christian minds, great pastors and leaders and theologians. But at this point, you have to examine what's happening here. Why, why Antioch? Why is this the moment? Is this the place that God chooses to pour out 
his hand a blessing upon these people. There's nothing strategic about Antioch in terms of if you're just trying to figure out a place that we should target with the gospel that would be receptive to what it is that we have to say about Christ being king, um, this is not the place that you're going to go, yeah, that, they're going to be receptive to the gospel. I spoke about it last week. Antioch is the heart and center of pagan worship of Daphne, uh, which is, uh, has ritual uh, prostitution. And they're also full of Hellenistic pride. We talked about the fact that the Greek culture was a, a place of, of pride for the people that lived there and, and adopted that, even in spite of Rome being the power. And so this is a seedbed of actually resistance to what you would expect the gospel to bring. But you need to see that Antioch wasn't chosen at all, at least not by man, right? Nobody amongst the apostles in Jerusalem had decided Antioch will be the place where we'll send out some missionaries to go and we'll just use that as the first place because it's kind of a strategically located port city. It's a great big metropolis and maybe that'll be a great place to start. It's not chosen by any man. And there's no great missionary strategy involved there unless you call run for your lives a strategic missionary strategy. If you look at what it says, it says those who were dispersed from Jerusalem because of the persecution that arose after Stephen is the reason why these people were there at all. And it also says that these are just people. They're just people that had to leave because of the persecution. And just people is important because you ask, well, who started the movement? Was it because they brought in the big name speaker and the, and the great band and they had enough fog machines and that's what really got the spirit moving? No. There's no prominent individual, no profound event, no big push because there's not a person who started this revival. It was God's hand and people who were being faithful to the word of Christ. So it says that these people were dispersed out of Jerusalem, running for their lives, and they go, and it says they do two things. There's two words used here for what it is that they do to declare the message of Christ. It says they speak, and then it says that they preach. They're sharing Jesus, first of all, in their normal interactions, in their normal discussions every day as they go about doing things. And if you're at all familiar with the Greek culture, they would have like a lot of public discourses in terms of just kind of gathering in the city square, gathering at the city gate, and you would, you know, someone would posit, posit some uh, idea of wisdom, and then that would be debated publicly. And perhaps this is a location where that took place, and somebody reasoned that maybe Daphne wasn't truly the god of it that need to be worshipped. And they said, in fact, there's one who's named Christ. And so they use this public avenue to speak to the people commonly about who Jesus was. But there's another word that's used here, and it's that they preached Christ. And this is an amazing word. And I want you to learn it. It's a long one, and it's a, compact, it's a compound word. So it goes like this. U-N. Okay. Galizo. Menoi. Okay, Euangelitsa Menoi. Okay, so now this is the word, it literally means gospeling. They go about gospeling Christ. Well, Euangelion is, is the word we, we translate it as gospel or the good news. And the word, you can see it in there with a U for us, uh, but it's the V got happen, uh, happened during the, you know, the, the, uh, Victorian era and the, the King James version. So we were the, the word euangelizo is to declare the good news. So euangelion is the good news and euangelizo is to declare the good news. And so here is all crammed together in that menoi is that plural version. So it says all of these people are going around gospeling. They're going around gospeling the good news of Jesus. And what is the good news? It's Jesus. Jesus is the good news. We can't forget that the good news is not about community. It's not about sin. It's not about heaven. 
It's not about resources or needs. It's a message of Christ, who is Lord and the only way of salvation. And that's, that's something you need to hear carefully, and I'll say again carefully. Our message to the world, if we're going around gospeling and we're sharing some good news, the good news is not about we have a community that you can join. It's not about we have resources to offer you. It's not, hey, you're a sinner and you need to sin less. It's not any of those things. That the message, the content of the gospel is Jesus who is king and Jesus who is the only way of salvation. And that has to be the, the content of what it is that we go around teaching and preaching and speaking of. Okay? So we move on. It says in verse 21 that the hand of the Lord was with them. Again, this nameless people who were just running for their lives. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay? It says they, they turned to the Lord, which is long form for they repented. Because to repent is to turn. It's a change of mind that turns from away from sin. Okay? And if you remember back in verse 18, the, the, the conclusion of what had happened with Cornelius and all of his house was that, um, that God had granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Okay? So there's a specific kind of repentance because there's a specific kind of meaningful object as, um, as the object of that repentance. It has a definite outcome. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That is the content of the gospel. That's what the gospel calls for. Jesus is king and Lord. He's the only way of salvation. So repent from your way of thinking and turn to Christ. Christ is the object of repentance. A call to Jesus is a call to turn away from self. It's a call to turn away from sin, but we must turn from sin to something and return from self to something, and that something must be Christ. The gospel call to repentance, again, isn't just a call away from sin to not sin. That's moralism, right? If I just say, hey, you're a sinner and you should repent of that, you should sin less. That just says you need to be a better person. That's moralism. That's, that's do-goodism. And we don't call from repentance from self to, uh, to God so that you can improve yourself. That's just therapeutic deism. And we don't call for and, re- and bless repentance. There's any kind of other motivational object other than Christ. So this is the essence of what repentance and faith is. Churches and Christians individually miss this. This, this point of faithfulness is crucial in it like it's the whole ballgame. If, if we miss that we're asking people to turn from self and sin, not to better self, or not sin, but to, to a person, then we miss the whole thing. We miss this because we preach sin less. Sin less than you did before. That's what you need to do. You sin less. No, that's not the object. Or life change, or situation improvement, or self-help, or motivational speech. These are byproducts of, hopefully, a life that does have Christ as its object of faith. But we'll get more on that in just a minute. So it says in verse 22 that the report of this. So God had his hand, he stretched out his hand, and many came and they repented and they turned. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. The wording of this news sort of betrays the fact that it feels like a little bit like they were spying on what was going on with the gospel, right? It appears that they they acquired this sort of um, 
I don't know, in like a way that wasn't received well. Even though Peter had been there and God had affirmed that the Gentiles really were part of this movement, there seems to be a different dynamic here, one that's like out of their grasp. And so they kind of send Barnabas there as a representative, but they don't actually send the A-team if you look at it. Like none of the apostles go. They send Barnabas. Well, why do they do that? Well, it all started in Jerusalem, obviously, and so the gospel was already intended to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, but you get the sense that they're almost surprised when God does that. Why, why does that occur here? I think they're surprised probably because it looks like God's moving without them. God's moving without them having to do it. And we can't become myopic about how God or when God or through who God will work. And we shouldn't become self-important or assume that God can or will only work through us. And I think that's a lot of what you see happening right now with the apostles because, you know, Peter had to go and, and kind of be there as, as part of the authority of the church. But now this is kind of going to go with like wildfire. And they don't have their hands around that. Romans 12, verse 3. I'm just going to read a couple of verses to you to, to help us position ourselves and a reminder to um, anybody how we, how we stand in front of God. Romans 12, verse 3. For by, for by the grace given to me, this is Paul writing, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, and each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So don't just uh, suppose that you are some important person in the, the, the realm of the kingdom because you think that God must work through you, or he has to use your gifts, or your experience, or your ideas. Because verse 4 goes on to then talk about the many functions and the important different varieties of functions within the body. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us. Let us use them. Okay? So he moves from don't think of yourself as better than you ought to think. Think with sober judgment, because all of us stand in grace. It's, nobody, got, nobody got pulled onto the team because you were the best person out there. God didn't need you on your team. You needed to be on his team, okay? And so he just reminds us that there's a variety of gifts, and God's gifted each one by his grace to come and, and to, to put this people of God together. So we should use all that we've been given in the variety that's given. And so providentially, on accident almost, they end up sending Barnabas, which is exactly what they need to do. There may have been some skepticism about, there, about them, uh, excuse me, from them about this movement. So they send Barnabas, but this is really providential for two reasons. We find out in chapter four, Barnabas was this guy, he was the son of encouragement, but he's also from Cyprus. So he's a Hellenistic Jew and he's from the area. So they're like, well, he's close enough down there. So you need to understand that Jerusalem is 300 miles from Antioch, okay? It's 300 miles north. They're not close by. Okay? So as these people had dispersed out of Jerusalem because of the persecution, they had traveled, right, Cyprus and Cyrene, and then some to Antioch, which is the furthest north there. And so um, they, they, they dispatch Barnabas probably from Cyprus, which is a little nearer from sending out an apostle. So, um, uh, so let's look at what Barnabas does then when he arrives. It says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Okay, so um, let me give you verse 24 too. Well, no, I'll stop there. Okay, so he, he exhorted them with, with steadfast purpose. Uh, so this is probably the central verse in, in the text this morning because it's loaded and it's easy to miss. It says, just read it carefully with me, when he came 
He saw the grace of God. He saw God's grace. And if I ask you, what does God's grace look like? You, you might have like a variety of answers to that, but you need to ask, what does God's grace look like when you arrive on the scene and don't have any context for what does God's grace look like? It probably looks a whole lot like the bad news bears version of church, okay? The ragtag crew that you don't expect to be together is now being called the church. How many of you guys, I know this is a mixed bag this morning, have seen the movie Frozen, right? Disney movie, okay, just get the scene here. There's, there's one scene where um, the two main characters, they walk in to this, this bar, this, this den of thieves, if you will, by, by all accounts, just a bad, bad, bad place. And they walk in and it's everything you would expect it to be. A guy's got, you know, a hook for a hand and just, you know, neck tattoos and stuff like that. Well, at the end of the scene, it ends up resolving all of these bad guys all have a dream, okay? They have a dream to be something, you know, really unexpected, so uh, it's, a, it's a great scene if, uh, if you want to read I'm sorry I get distracted by that. But so, so look, they, they have this scene. I've got a dream, and it's, and it's out of the people that you least expect it to be. God's grace looks sketchy. Let me say it that way, and uncomfortable. There's probably more face tattoos and salty language and long rap sheets than you and I are likely comfortable with. That's what God's grace looks like. When you have a group of self-serving, lifelong pagans who are just tossed into the ocean of grace and put together, that's what God's grace looks like. That's, that's called a church. But we're used to putting on our best, right? And we kind of make sure that we, we come to church and when we gather with the collective people that we put on the front that nobody would have any suspicions that we used to have a past or let alone that we might be dealing with something right now. And what happens when Barnabas shows up is he sees all these people who have been pagans their whole life. They have no context in the Jewish religion. They just know they've been saved by this man who came and died for their sins. And so this probably looks very messy. But when Barnabas arrived, he saw what God was doing. And instead of freaking out, it says that he was glad. He rejoiced. There's a weird problem that we have in the church where we want to see God work, but we also want to run quality control for what the the work looks like, right? God wants you to work so long as you do it in this way, and then you do it immediately. Like, I don't like a long runway. Like, just bring them from A to Z, because otherwise there's a long time there, and there's a lot of mess in there, right? And so we sort of apply this set of standards to God's work, and we want to see God's grace, but we want it to be clean, and we want it to be immediate, and we want it to be to our benefit. Then we'll rejoice, that's when we decide we'll rejoice in God's working. But that's not what happens. And that's why Barnabas is the right guy. He's the right guy at the right time. His name literally means son of encouragement. He has the gift of encouragement. He recognizes God's grace and God's work. And he boosts these people on towards a specific end. He says he, says he encouraged them to stay faithful with steadfast purpose. That's his encouragement toward them. He recognizes God's grace and he boosts them on towards that end. So what we need before we need any correction, before anything that says, hey, you know, you could have done this better, or I see you've got some problems here, some issues there, right? Before any of that happens, and what we need more than pointing out that something isn't perfect or it hasn't arrived all the way or there's some rough edges. So before and more than we need those things, we need encouragement. We need exhortation. That's not a word that we use very often. Exhortation comes from another compound Greek word, para kaleo, okay? Two words. Para means alongside or to come next to, and kaleo is to call out. There is almost a 
an oxymoronic nature to these two things. One is soft and one is sort of hard. There's a softness and a hardness to exhortation. There's care and concern, but there's also a push to move forward. This is the same word that is used of the ministry of the Spirit, who's called our helper and our comforter. He's the parakletos, okay? So that's, that's the, 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 the same word that's used here for Barnabas, excuse me, Barnabas' exhortation to these people. He's the one who comes alongside these people right where they are, and he calls them to, to move forward. He boosts them towards the right end. This church needed Barnabas, and every one of us needs Barnabas in our lives. We need people who are spirit-filled exhorters and comforters, but we also need the Spirit himself, the paraclete. Some people think it's, it's, it's like excessively mean to call out sin, or it's legalistic to hold to any kind of standard. And so they stay at a stage where they revel in sin and they call it grace. Okay? That's one type of person. You, you say, hey, I, I think all of your rules are dumb. I think you're being legalistic to, to say that's sin and you shouldn't do that. And so they just stay at an infantile stage indulging in the flesh and they call it grace. That's, that's one type of person. Then there's the person who is driven by rules and standards and they despise and judge anybody who will not abide by those. And, and so they, they want everybody to else to, to get up onto their level. And the Holy Spirit is the mediator between these two kinds of people. He's the perfect mix of correction and love. He's half drill sergeant and half Mr. Rogers. You're welcome. Okay? That's, that's the Holy Spirit. He, he operates perfectly in coming alongside of us, but calling us forward in the right direction. When a baby is learning to walk, if they, you know, as babies do, if you've seen them take their first step, if you were to just be like, oh, that's terrible, they, they fell over, just one step, come on, I walked it three months, this thing is, you know, like, if that was the approach to getting babies to walk, babies would never walk, right? That can't be the way to go. On the contrary, we can't coddle them by, in their failure. Oh, one step, that's all you needed, that's great, and then you carry your baby around for the next 17 years, right? That gets awkward and weird. We need spiritual encouragement from the Spirit and from Spirit-filled believers who boost us towards the right trajectory and the right goal. Verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit worked with him. And so he he used this and a great many people were added to the Lord because of Barnabas' presence. Verse 25, so it says, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's like an abrupt change. It's like, hey, everything's going well. And then all of a sudden, Barnabas goes to look for Tarsus, or excuse me, for Saul in Tarsus. And um, there's a gap here. And you have to ask the question, why Saul? Why Saul at this moment here now? So we need to just take a moment to, to appreciate God's providence in all that's occurred since Stephen's testimony before the Sanhedrin, right? So that got introduced way back in Acts 6. And it's like this big stone gets dropped into the middle of a pond and the ripples have been working their way out ever since then, right? And so already twice in the text, there's, there's been appearances of things that have happened because of the faithful testimony of Stephen, right? First was the fact that because the persecution arose right after that, these faithful believers had dispersed out. And here they are, the first wave of missionaries to um, Cyprus and Cyrene and into Antioch. And so that's the, 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 the ripples carrying forward. But not only that, we, we know that it's Stephen's testimony that eventually leads to the conversion of Saul, right? And so Saul has been kind of doing 
whatever he can, but everywhere he goes, he makes it harder for himself and for all the Christian believers, right? And so the apostles have kind of like quietly put him away in Tarsus, which is where he's from. And so this is called his silent years. But here he is reappearing in the story. And if you remember, Barnabas was the one that vouched for Saul when he went to Jerusalem. And the apostles didn't believe that he was one um, one one of them. And so here he is reappearing. This is all still because of the divine providence of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And the, the text indicates here that he had to actually search pretty hard for, for Saul. He must have been laying low because it was his hometown. I don't know, something like that. And it says he looked high and low, but eventually he, he finds him. He secures him. And I want you to know something else. Barnabas, when he goes, he sees the hand of God. He sees the grace. He sees the church growing. He's exhorting them on. He doesn't call back to HQ. He didn't, he didn't go back to Jerusalem. Now, my, some of that might be uh, just practical, right? It's 300 miles away. And Tarsus is much closer. But I think that also... Um, that Barnabas was familiar with Saul's teaching. And he knows that Saul's going to serve a specific purpose for these people, a specific purpose that is needed amongst the people who are fresh into the pool of grace but don't really have a lot of direction yet. Verse 26 tells us why he needed Saul. It says, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church. And they taught a great many people. And And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christian. And just a reminder, reminder that the word Christian literally means of Christ or belonging to Christ or in the order of Christ. So if we're tossed into this ocean of grace and we're mushed together like this ragtag crew of misfits, which we are, and we're born like little children into God's family, into the kingdom, we are meant, though, to grow and mature from that stage into full maturity, Right? And so many of the issues that plague the church today that we are frustrated with or we point at or that seem to be issues, that I think they're largely related to immaturity, an immaturity that manifests as immorality. That makes sense? You, you, you came in as, as uh, having a specific identity. This is where we ended last week. You used to be what you were, a sinner, okay? But when God calls you by his grace, you're washed clean, you're given the name of Christian, you're of Christ, you belong to Christ, and you're supposed to mature into that reality, that title, that truth of your being. But when we revel in this very immature stage, we revel in who we used to be in our flesh. That's the, that's the dichotomy that's always presented. And so immaturity con- um, frequently manifests among the church as immorality. Just read the book of Corinthians. What's Paul's main frustration? You guys are a mess, right? You just, you accept morality, but you call it grace. And that's not what we're called to do. We're supposed to grow up into the Lord and to mature. But don't lose sight of the fact that it's not your maturing or your adherence to the law or doing things the right way that actually brings you in. It's grace that brings you in. It's grace that you stand on. That was reminded already in the Romans passage, right? You, you stand on grace, so don't forget that. But it's also grace that keeps you. But maturity is the intention of all children, right? You have to grow up. You can't be the 17-year-old being carried around on your mom's hip right? Or the 40-year-old or the 90-year-old, okay? We got we to grow up. Jesus reminds us that we get into the kingdom by being childlike, but not remaining in the kingdom being childish, okay? Childlike, not childish. Milk gets us so far, but then we need the meat of the word. There needed to be teaching and instruction. Barnabas goes, they've got the gospel. They get it. 
They're in grace. He exhorts them towards that purpose, but he realizes there needs to be some strong instruction for these people on the word of God. I know the guy who's really good at that. And they get a one-year crash course, intensive, better. The guy that wrote Romans tells them all that they need to know about life and instruction. So he, he's fulfilling the purpose that Jesus had in making disciples. Remember, you, 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 whatever you're taught, you, you become like, right? And whatever you worship, you become like. And so here it is, him fulfilling part of that commission. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Don't just teach them what I commanded, but teach them to walk in obedience for what I've commanded. That's twofold. You're to be taught and you're supposed to obey that teaching. Maturing believers does not happen outside of the instruction of obedience to God's words. You, you don't, if you mature outside of the instruction to God's word, that's moralism. I need you to make that distinction strong enough. You can do the bootstraps thing, but then you've missed grace. You don't stand by your doing good. You stand by grace. And the object of that grace is Christ himself. But when, when we uh, try to grow outside of God's word, we miss the whole boat. So a spirit-filled word preaching, that's a redundant statement, but a spirit-filled word preaching teacher cannot go wrong. So I need to say something here. Because we know Paul, Saul at this moment, as the guy who wrote half, more than half of the New Testament, depending on how you count the books. And so we think of Paul teaching these people for a year as like, I mean, the guy, did every time he stand up, is that scripture level infallibility where he's just telling him, here's do this, don't do that. I don't think that's the case. Every word he said did not have the kind of authoritative power of scripture. So Paul or Saul at this moment is not an infallible person. Absolutely not. And neither are pastors. But Saul or Paul at this moment and any pastor that will at least in some sense faithfully present the word of God is all that's needed because the word of God speaks for itself. And the Holy Spirit empowers that speaking to say exactly what needs to be said. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, when he's exhorting Timothy, his, his um, assistant, his protege, if you will, coming along in the ministry, he commands Timothy, he says, And what you have heard from me, teaching in the presence of many witnesses, also entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Right? So there's a teaching command there, a ministry that's supposed to be perpetuated on through those who are presenting the word of God to the people. So let's keep moving there. In verse 27, it says, Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, I, I, there's going to be a, a prophecy given here. And I, I just want to, this is not where we're going today. I just want to point out, I said a few weeks ago, about the, the, the purpose of prophecy. And here it is, serving its real purpose here for the church. The, the prophetic purpose is to, to warn the church exactly what's going to happen, specifically what's going to happen. Not generalities, what's, what might happen. This is a specific word given to the people of God. And so we'll, we'll, um, we'll look at that. But I want to show you real quick in Ephesians 4 what it says. In Ephesians 4, verse 11, I'm, I'm going to read a good chunk here, a couple paragraphs, so you can get the flow of thought. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. He just had all these different positions. Remember, Paul said, hey, uh, by the grace of God, we have varied gifts, and let everyone operate in those same gifts in the body of Christ for the purpose of building it up. So we have apostles, we have prophets, we have evangelists, we have shepherds. All of those have been present so far in this text. And now it says, while the purpose of building them up is so that we can attain unity 
of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and mature manhood, right? We're, we're not meant to stay as children. We're supposed to grow up into maturity so that we can attain the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ so that we may no longer be children, right? You're not supposed to continue to be a child tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. All those things have to do with your ability to sort out right from wrong. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way who is uh, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, held by every joint with which is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's, that's the whole summation. When everything is working in order, when every, per- when every person is serving their purpose, God given by grace and by the gifting of the Holy Spirit, when they're doing that, that's what builds us up together in unity into love. God gives the church a people who are gifted in various ways as a gift to the church. That's the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, right? That's, that's a gift to the church to build them up. And so he gives the church with people who have various capacities, but he also gives the church with himself, the Spirit, right? When, I already said this, but I'm just going to remind you. When Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but I won't leave you alone, I will give you another. And that another was the Spirit himself. He will come, and he will come to you, and he will, and then that's the last promise of Christ. I will, I will be with you always, and that always and with you is the Spirit, So each one of these people that are operating in our text are full of the Spirit, and they're acknowledged as such. The gospel is sufficient to equip those who were dispersed from Jerusalem to go down and speak the word of God and to gospel the people with the knowledge of Jesus, right? That's sufficient, but they're not sufficient in themselves. They send down Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who encourages them in grace, but then it pushes them forward to their faithfulness and to purpose. But Barnabas and the people aren't enough in themselves, so he has to go and find Saul, Saul to instruct them into the teaching and grow up into the knowledge of who God is and to, to understand the scriptures and to work together. But Saul, Barnabas, and the people aren't enough. Agabus comes down, a prophet from Jerusalem, travels down to give them much-needed Holy Spirit information for what they need to move forward. So let's look at what was needed. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and he foretold by the Spirit, again, the Spirit arrived there with the gift of the Spirit, that there would be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. I just, again, want to point out the precision when God speaks. It's not, it's not general. It's not a maybe. It's, it's, a, it's a precise prophecy, and it's still operating in this time. So, because Agabus had come and given this word, they, they needed to do something about it. And so now we have the disciples. They decide to do something. That's now the church. The disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So now you've got one more layer. So we have disciples there. We've got, do I need to go through the whole thing? We have the people, and we had Barnabas, and then we had Saul, and then we had Agabus, and now we have the disciples. But now there's one more because they don't deliver it themselves. They deliver it to not the apostles, but the elders of the church in Jerusalem. There's another layer now. The elders, the shepherds who have been given to shepherd the, the, the different churches there in Jerusalem. So what did they determine to do? Well, this is my um, brief conclusion on giving. Okay, this will be the rest of our message this morning. I can count on three fingers the number of giving messages I've given. Okay, so here we are by the text getting to meet with 
their determination to give. So I want to point out just several things about their giving. They determined to give. That means they purposed it. They had decided. It was a a resolute decision within them. And they gave each according to his ability, not according to their desire or lack of desire, and not according to their leftovers or lack of leftovers. They purposed and determined it. They gave in proportion to what they had been given, what God had already blessed them with. They gave before it was a crisis, right? Agabus came and said, there's going to be a famine. So before there ever was a big need in Jerusalem, it's foreseen, and they make the collection then. They give before it ever becomes a crisis. They give towards the brothers. And I think that's an important statement here. They give towards the brothers. We could, guys, we could put money and resources into a lot of good causes, but we're reminded in Galatians that we should do good to everyone, but especially those of the family of faith. So that our giving is to support those who are connected to us deeper than anyone else. So they give towards the brothers, and it says only the disciples gave. So if, if, if people come in from the outside and, and they want to pitch in, we're not going to refuse it. But it's also not your way to just like assuage guilt by tipping God some of your leftovers. Okay? So they purposed and determined it. They gave in proportion to what they had. They gave it before it was a crisis. They gave it towards the brothers, and only the disciples gave. That's five principles, I think, that are here in the text about giving. But one more thing is that they reflected the union that they had with these other believers that they'd never met before, and who probably were a little bit skeptical about who they were. It's the Gentiles supporting the Jews now in what will eventually become a crisis in Jerusalem because of this famine. James reminds us that it's no good to wish somebody well. Say, I'll pray for you, right? It's just, don't, don't, don't say, hey, I bless you. Hey, be warm and well-fed when you can meet the need. So they, they must meet the need because that's the uh, opportunity they've been given. So as we mature into the, the word of God and to knowing him, we should be not just declaring what we know, but we should be living it out. And that's exactly what we see in these people. They're growing into maturity because of all that they've experienced, and it comes out in the overflow of what they do. You, you overflow what's inside of you, right? So when grace and generosity has been poured inside of you, it overflows into your giving. So what's the point of this text? Well, it's many faceted, I think. Faithfulness is our task, not achievement. I, I think that's so hard for us to grasp. Our task is faithfulness, not achievement not lone wolfing it, not DIYing the church. The the, the building of the church is this shoulder-to-shoulder, side-by-side nature that happens with one another, but also through the Holy Spirit coming alongside of us. But faithfulness is only possible when it's tethered to, as we've seen in the text, God's word, God's truth, God's gifts, and God's people. And that's what constitutes faithfulness, focusing on that. And the collection that is delivered to the hands of the elders for for God's disbursement, and they don't still have their hands around it. It's just faithful to honor God with what it is that they do in their speech, in their giving, in their learning, in their growing. All of it is just to to be faithful to Christ. So, here's my my parakaleo to you this morning, okay? This is this is Mitch just talking. Drill Sergeant and Mr. Rogers, as best as I can. 
The question of do we believe that God's word in the gospel is really enough to build the kingdom is challenged in our mentality about how we look at the world and what we think of as what will or will not build the church. And we can take a lot of different roads to try and fulfill that purpose. I spoke a little bit about it in the primer. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we can solo effort this thing, just get, did it top notch and try as hard as we can to, to do some program or to point to some specific thing that we think will entice people in. And that, at the end of the day, is not faithfulness. That's, that's self-trust. That's saying, I think I can design this and, and, and uh, strategize this enough so that God will build this kingdom on my good ideas instead of God will build this kingdom on his word. And that this gospel truly is the power of, uh, of salvation and not any other thing. So if we didn't have a children's program, and if the coffee was terrible, like freeze-dried, right? And the music was, was bad. And maybe there's no electricity in the building. And maybe there was no chairs. And God forbid you had to either bring your own chair or like sit on the floor. Or what if we didn't have a building at all, right? And if all of the comforts and accoutrement of what it is that we do when we gather here was, was away, would you still believe that God would add people to his kingdom without those things? And what if the pastor, you know, just didn't have any charisma, and what if he you know, didn't have any Instagram followers? And like, is that enough? Do we believe that God's gospel is enough to reach new people? And I think we say, well, yeah, in principle, but, right? And that's the problem. It's the but. Don't we have to do this too? And, and, and that's where we go astray because we try to add something on top of it. And I think we actually do a disservice to all of it. We fixate on the fruits of what we know people can become. And we preach that instead of the root, which is Christ. Christ is Jesus, or Christ is Lord. And, and we tell them, that's, that's, the, that's the root of it, instead of sinless. Or God can change your situation, right? And those are, are good things that might come out of Christ as the object of their life, but not before Christ is the object of their life. We give them something else to chase, and that's a problem. So if all of that stuff was removed... Would you still worship? Would you still come? Would you still trust the Lord to, to move? And you say, well, can't I have both? And you already have both. Here you are. Okay? So my question isn't, can you have both? My question is, beneath all the stuff that you already have and what we already do, do you trust that at the core? Does that mean that we shouldn't bother or we shouldn't try to be strategic or we shouldn't outreach? No, no, no. Don't get me wrong. But we have to make sure that the purpose, the foundation of what it is that we do and what we present and what we, we, we really trust in is not any of the things that we do to try and build the kingdom. But it's, it's God who does it. And um, I just hope this morning that's enough of an encouragement and a push. It's an encouragement because, look, guys, if it was up to us, we couldn't get it done anyway. We wouldn't get it done. Or we'd build something that wasn't kingdom. It would just be a, 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 a sorry little molehill that we call the kingdom of God. And we celebrate on top of it like we did something great. So my exhortation is to trust God and trust his timing and to trust his building and to trust his word and trust him. Amen? Let's pray.